0: So we uh, we continue on here in Paul's magisterial letter to the church in Rome and to us. And of course I had no idea how this would fit together this morning, but in light in light of what's happened and is happening, I want us to begin with this question. What's one thing you would change about the world? What's one thing you would change about the world? And perhaps a, a way to get at that, since Paul is unafraid to speak in the first person about his own sort of existential personal journey as he wrestles with Christ, what's one thing you would change about yourself? I was thinking about that this week, and I, I talked to Caitlin a lot about this. Just, I, I can tend to be sometimes critical, tend to want to control things. That's about me, right? That's about me feeling like maybe things are out of control in my own soul. So I feel like if I can just get my environment okay, then I'll be okay. But we know we've tried. (laughs) And we realize it's not an issue of the externals. You know, I, I could write another 50 laws to not break about my own life. But the issue, Paul tells us, lies in the heart. It lies with the problem of our sin and our sinful nature in the heart. And I, I confess to you that this morning as I read the news yesterday and was getting texts from my, my pastor friends in El Paso that I'm kind of beyond, uh, you know, sad and, and scared, more just angry. we just angry at, at the why. And by the way, it's a very complex why. And we jump straight to these, you know, quick little, oh, well, if we did this or did that or did the other, Simmer down. Evidence Exhibit A, all of human history. But I found myself just angry again about this tragedy. And I I think in part it's because a mere two days ago I was with my own kids at Target, which is nothing but a, you know, Walmart with lipstick on. (laughs) I was with my own kids at Target just buying school supplies. And then I woke up this morning and kind of felt like, I don't know if I can do that anymore. Like, I don't know if I can just go there without being careful and without, you know, my eyes on the doors and without a level of preparedness. It made me angry. What's the one thing about the world that you would change? And here's a, here's a positive view. I wonder if you saw... Any articles this week about the, uh, the artist, Hispanic artist, Rayal Ronaldo, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, who went and installed an art installation down at our southern border and put in a series of four pink seesaws. Anyone see that? Well, I kind of like it. I kind of like this idea that in New Mexico, down in Loveland, there's Some artists that showed up and put some seesaws across the barrier, across the wall. And I have no doubt that some of this was for the sake of, you know, photo opportunity. But, you know, the kids didn't know that. And they didn't care. So there's all these beautiful pictures of these kiddos just playing together on either side of the border. I got to thinking that is a picture of how the church, which is its own polis, Its own kingdom breaking into all the kingdoms and political systems of the world. That's how the church is supposed to be in the world and not of it. The church does not wield the power of the sword. We have spiritual power to bring the truth of the love of Christ to the world. We, the people of God in the church, even as we are citizens of this country, and that's amazing, we are ultimately citizens of heaven. So we are to go out and find where there are barriers, and build bridges creatively so that children can play upon them. That's what it means for the church to be in the world and not of it, that the the justice of God transcends. And I I understand there's a lot of opinions about this. And I'm not giving an opinion, by the way, because we don't do that from this pulpit. I'm not giving an opinion. And whatever your opinion is, I'm sure it's right because of what you read on the internet. And you're smart, and I'm sure it's fine, and it's right. No, this isn't about any of our opinions about such things. It's about the fact that God's justice, God's making all things new, God's giving us a new way to be human now. Divorced, as it were, from the law of death, married as it is to the covenant keeper, the faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. There is a new way to be human in the world and not of it. To build bridges where there are barriers. Sovereign nations must have their barriers. Sovereign nations must find ways to allow folks in need to seek asylum and still protect their borders. But we are the kingdom of God. And so we transcend all those things now creatively, going out into the world, speaking and acting in a way that our friends go, you guys are weird. You guys are weird because we have a category for people over here, and we have a category for people over here, but you Christians are you're kind of in both worlds. And you're in both worlds in such a way, not just offering up your prayers, but getting your hands and feet dirty, doing the work of the justice of God in the world. That's what Paul's getting at. He's been building his argument, Romans 1 through 5. We are justified, that is given a new status as not only forgiven of sin, but declared just and righteous in the full righteousness of Christ by faith alone. We are justified, not by works of the law, Thank God. I love to hear that one when I come to church. Not by how straight your tie is this morning, or how heavy the turquoise necklace is, or how, you know, how ironed your collar is. Not by works of the law. Because Christ has kept the law, but by faith. And that doesn't mean, as we saw in Romans 6, that we fly into this, like, woohoo, I can do whatever I want now. Saved by grace through faith. So I've got the grace credit card, so I'm gonna just go out and boom. Go from law, swing the pendulum to licentiousness. Paul says no. In fact, it's the love of God that that releases the burden of the law, that constrains licentiousness, and helps us to walk in the way of Jesus. So in chapters 6 through 8, he's giving us the implications of the gospel. What does it mean to be a new human now as we live between two worlds? That's what he says in verse 6. Now, we live between two ages, the now and the not yet. The, the, the Jews of Rome would have understand, understood, that before Messiah comes, you live in the present evil age. Remember we've heard Paul say that. Before Messiah comes, it's the present evil age. The, the serpent is kind of reigning. Uh, God is breaking in through this nation-state of, of Israel, but it's a small group. He's, he's pushing back sin. There's common grace. But when Messiah comes, then we will go from the present evil age to the age to come, Paul says. The age of all things in the new creation and the renewal of all things. And what's so amazing about Jesus and what Paul's explaining to these hearers is actually you thought it was just going to be one point in time. Present evil age, age to come. But instead, through the cross and the resurrection of the Jewish carpenter, who is God the Son, we now live in the now. The kingdom is breaking in. Look around. What in the world does this bunch of weirdos have in common, except for Jesus? What could possibly unite us across ages and ethnicities and and, status and socioeconomics except for Jesus? The kingdom is breaking in now, but as you read the news, we remember that it is not yet. So Paul wants to show us in Romans 6 through 8 what the gospel implies and how we are now to live in between these two worlds as new human beings. And there's two things I think that Paul shows us here under a single main point. Because I don't know if you if you followed along in this text, I feel like this almost every week as we're going through Romans, this is really complicated. I mean it's very hard to follow. It's much easier to follow, you know, a story in the Gospels that's narrative, but Paul is tightly packing in logic and rational argumentation that's building on the preceding six chapters. Yes, it's difficult to follow, but I think Paul has one main point, which is there is now a new way to be human. And he flushes it out in two ways. First, so if you're a note taker, this is for you. First, we have a new promise. And secondly, we have a new purpose. There's a new way to be human. And as we think about what is the one thing you would change about the world, keep that truth in mind. First of all, our new promise is a new relationship. Why in the world is Paul using this analogy from marriage? It's a good analogy and it's a weird one. It's good because marriage was common and vows and the contractual binding nature of marriage was common to both Jews and Greeks in the Roman church and the empire. But it's weird because we can get lost in the weeds. But Paul wants to show us that our new promise, our new way to be human, is a new relationship. And this pertains to how we relate now to our creator. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you were in an old marriage. You were in an old contract. And I don't use this term lightly at all because I know for a fact that there are some in this room who have suffered in this way. But what Paul is saying is that old contract, that old marriage, was kind of abusive. Maybe it wasn't, you know, physically abusive, but it was spiritually abusive. It was, it was harsh. And the more you tried, the more it failed. The, the old contract... The old contract of you and your sinfulness according to the written code, the law, did not work. And here we have to remember what Paul does in in Romans 5 when he talks about Adam and then Christ, who is the second Adam. Paul talks about the covenant of works, that Adam stood before God and God said, Look, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust me, you have all this stuff. I want to give you everything, Adam. It's for your good. The law is good, Paul says. The law is holy. Adam, I want to give you all these things. Just trust me about this one tree, okay? If you try to do it your own way, if you believe the lie of the Satan, the accuser, the liar, did God really say, if you you eat of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, it's going to send you into a tailspin of death. Will you just trust me that, that my moral compass is for your good? I want you to flourish. I'm not just some angry, you know, guy up in the sky who wants to turn you into a little pawn and restrict you and and weaken you and hollow you out till there's nothing left but an obedient slave. No, I want you to be free. And these, these laws are good because they reflect the holiness and the character of God. Therefore, your freedom. But what does Adam do? He doesn't trust the Lord. And because Adam sins, we all sin in Adam. We are born not just those who do sin, but have a sinful nature. And therefore, in Adam, all die. And so the old contract is bad. Not because, as Paul says, the law is bad. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. The law is good. God has said, this is how you should live if you want the fullness of life. The problem is not the written code. The problem is us. We are. The law is an objective, holy, moral standard for our flourishing and for our knowing how we can love our neighbor as ourselves well. It's our way to be happy and holy if only we could keep it. And the problem with the old contract was, it's as if the law were the husband, but we, the bride, are trapped in our sin. And the only way to be free is if that old husband is to to pass. Because there's no freedom in us trying to keep the law unto salvation. The law can never save us. It can lead us helpless and hopeless to the cross. But the law has no power in and of itself to save. And so what does the law do? Paul says in this third paragraph, it arouses our passions. It stirs us up. There's no sexual connotation here. Um, Arouse meaning to stir up, like to stir up curiosity. The law tells us what we can't do, and then just like kids, we kind of want to do what we can't do. My favorite example of this from this last week is, uh, again, from Michael Kruger, who's a professor at a seminary, and he said, you know, when I was living in Oxford doing my doctoral work, there was a sign on the lawn that said, do not step on the grass. And I don't know about you guys, because I used to be a skateboarder. And I'm New Mexican, so there's a little bit of an inner rebel. But when I see a sign that says, do not step on the grass, I'm like, oh, really? Who said not to stop on the grass? Under whose authority do I listen to? And, you know, they're like, okay, I'm not going to step on the grass, but whoop, there's my toe. That's not stepping, that's towing. Well, how about my heel then? You know, just like with with our kiddos, like, don't touch that. And they're like, "Uh," they like get right as close as they can. That's what the law does. The law shows Paul what it means to covet. What it means to you know what it means to have all these things that are there already inside but it shines a magnifying glass upon them. And the great irony that Paul shows us in this text is that the law doesn't actually by showing us what sin is, it doesn't heal us. Instead it actually kind of makes us sin more. Hearing the commandment that is for our good, do not touch Actually, weirdly, not because of the law, but because of our sin, makes us want to touch. That's why Paul says sin seizes the opportunity that the holiness of the law provides in its selfishness to push the boundaries, to go all the way back to the garden, and to stand in the place of our first father, Adam, and say, Did God really say? That's what the law does. So as sin seizes those opportunities, Paul says, look, if that's the case, if we're that in need of help and hopeless in our own strength, if sin will seize every opportunity to capitalize on what God has given that is good, then we need a Savior who will seize us. We must die to the old contract. We must die to the old marriage. We must die to the old abuser. So that we might be raised up in Christ. John, in his gospel, chapter 3, records a story of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. And he puts it this way. If anyone would enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. That is what Paul is getting at here. We can only be free to be in a new relationship. A new promise a new way to be human if we die to the old vows, the old contract, if that dies off and now we are rescued by a new lover, by a new bridegroom, by a new husband, one who will never abuse, never reject, never shame, never speak a harsh word, but by his kindness draws us to turn from that which does not satisfy and to turn to him. This story is all throughout the Old Testament. God gathers his people like sheep. The people of Israel and what do they do? Bless their hearts. That's Texas theology right there. What does Israel do? Lord, help these people. They have been saved by the grace of God and yet they wander off this way. They wander off that way. Read First and 2 Kings. They are a hot mess and there are consequences for both the heat and the messiness. And yet what does God do? He proves himself, faithful. The book of Hosea is all about this. The people of Israel are living in spiritual adultery. They're running away to other lovers. They're cheating on the bridegroom. But God says, no, you are my people. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never break my vows to you. And how good it is to know that in the old contract, it was up to us to try to keep the vows, which we constantly failed at. But in the new contract, We are fully seen in our brokenness and fully loved, not in our own strength to keep promises, but in God's. And that's why Paul dives into this analogy, giving us, as it were, a sense of real intimacy in our relationship to Jesus. It's not just that a Savior must seize us in these legal terms, and Paul is a fan of using the legal terms, and they're helpful, and they're explanatory. But there's intimacy here. The Savior who seizes us in this new relationship is the Jesus who chooses us to be his bride. And I just want us to have a moment here to give thanks to the Lord for this. And to think about how different this is than, you know, on the one hand, materialism. Where we're all ultimately just atoms and quarks banging around the universe. So suffering is sad, but at the end of the day, I don't know, the universe is cold and doesn't care about you or me. And to the flip side, so many religions in the world that have some form of you working your way to God. Some form of, okay, bridegroom over here, bride over here, but the bride better make sure, you know, the bride better make sure she comes with some purity. Bride better make sure she's, you know, doing okay. Lest the bridegroom reject the offering. Instead here we have Jesus the faithful Israelite, the covenant keeper. Remember that great word in Romans, righteousness, covenant justice. He is both just and the justifier. Or in the sense of, you know, Ruth and Boaz. He is both the righteous bridegroom, the righteous man, and the kinsman redeemer to his people, to his bride, to you. And it strikes at our deepest need, which is why Paul isn't just doing, quote, theology here. Our deepest need is to be fully known, fully exposed. God sees it all. All the weakness, all the brokenness, all the shame, all the regret. And because of Christ, we are fully loved. Because of his finished work, we are fully loved. So Paul moves us from this analogy of marriage. You are now in Christ, union with Christ, united to Jesus in this new marriage. The old Horrible husband has died. And now the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ, has come to rescue us. So what do we do? If our new promise is a new relationship in Jesus, then our new purpose is that we serve in the way of the Spirit, as Paul says. You belong to another. We now serve in the way of the Spirit. So he moves from a marriage analogy to a birth analogy. You are now married to the one who can love you perfectly and will forever, who will walk with you in your sufferings, who will help and hear your cries. And now it is our joy as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, to give birth, to bear good fruit, to be about the mercy and the love and the justice of God in our city, to call people through the kindness of God to repentance, To be those who are the first in our city. To not move away from the hurting, but toward. To not move away from those who are different and other and not like us, but toward. And I would say, the more different they are, the quicker you should move toward. And I think there's a few things that that we can apply here as Paul spells this out. So, sort of the, the foundation is, our new promise is a new relationship. We are married to Christ. And the application is our new purpose as we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Three things that I want to point out. There's probably 30 more, but lunch calls. The first thing we do is we subvert power. We subvert as Christians in the church and community. Hear me, you guys, because if we're not doing this, it scares me to death. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church? We were so religious. Lord, you should have seen my collection of bolo ties. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but consider the context of what Paul is doing in the Roman church. We subvert the powers of the world. Why? You should be asking this question. I mean, can we be done with the law yet, Paul? Like, this is like week 10 now. And we're still talking about the law. Why is Paul spending so much time Speaking to those Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, in the church in Rome? Why is he conceding to them and answering their their arguments one after another? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but the main reason is that Paul longs to see these people reconciled in Christ across their differences. And you must remember that the Jews, they are a marginalized, persecuted minority in Rome. So much so that six years prior, they were expelled from the city of Rome. And one ancient document says, because they were talking about Crestus, which is probably Christ, they had planted this little church in a van down by the river while the wealthy Gentiles lived in the hills around Rome. Some of you can picture that in your mind's eye. Six years later, they come back to their little city and they come back to their church and you know what they find? What is this place? This place has changed. We had this beautiful little Jewish community where we were believing that the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ and talking and reading in Hebrew. And st- Now there's all these Gentiles here. Not just Gentiles, but people who have a position of power and status and privilege if they are citizens of the Roman Empire. So part of the reason that Paul is spending so much time speaking to the Jews about the law is because he knows the Gentiles are listening in. And it's as if he wants to say to them and to us, those who are in positions of power and positions of privilege in any society must be the first to take off their outer garments, fall to their knees, and wash the feet of those around them as servants. Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom where it is actually possible for these minority persecuted Jews and Gentiles who are putting their faith in Christ in a little persecuted church in Rome to actually be unified in something that is bigger than their differences. And when the world sees that, the world goes, whoa, what is going on here? What is this about? Because these people have nothing in common. And more than that, it's not that they don't have anything in common. The thing that they share in common makes those in power and privilege want to move toward those who don't and serve them. In our our hearts, where the law is written on our hearts, when we see that, we know we are tasting and seeing the justice of God. So we subvert power in our new purpose. We also undermine religion. As I said, religion, even in every one of its small forms of religiosity, is some way you working yourself to God. Some form of works and righteousness. Jesus plus something I do gets me there. Or the little gods need to be appeased and I better put the right stuff up on the altar so that, you know, they're not mad at me today. The beauty of what Paul is speaking to these people, Jew and Gentile, so different. And, you know, our, our church, is, our city is multicultural, and if you've ever been in a very multicultural church, it's hard. Like, people don't understand each other. There's culture shock. There's like, that doesn't make sense to me, and we do it this way, and you do it that way, and, you know, it looks great on paper, and it's hard to do in reality. But it's as if Paul is saying what's so beautiful is that the Jews who have the written code of the Old Testament and the Scriptures and the Gentiles who have their place and position of power, everyone is saved in the same way. And and it's not by religiosity for anyone. Everyone is saved in the same way by faith alone. And everyone is laid low, no matter what their privilege or their power might be. Everyone is laid low so that all can be united in Christ. And lastly, a great and important implication of chapter 7 is that we are teachable. We subvert power, we undermine religion, and we are humble. If you believe the words that Paul writes in Romans, we of all people should be the most humble. We should be teachable. Because when we come to the Bible, we don't come to impose our will upon it, but the Bible reads us. And you know what happens when the Bible reads us? We often find ourselves in one of two categories. Some of us lean more to the law. We kind of like rules. And again, the law is good and holy, but we're sinful, and that can become legalism. Legalism does not mean obeying the law. Legalism means If you obey these laws in this way, God will like you more. And some of us lean toward that. And then we look at the people over here who are more free. And we look and we point and we judge. They're licentious. Now, to the people over here who are more free, they look at these kind of fuddy-duddy weirdos and they're like, ah, legalists, I can do what I want. I can eat and drink and be merry and trust in Christ. And the great irony is that those who consider themselves free if they lord it over their brothers and sisters, actually end up engaging in reverse legalism. I'm free to drink and eat this, and you're not. Now you're the legalist. And Paul says we tend to lead toward law or lean toward license, but in Christ, being humble, being teachable, means we learn to live in the sacrificial love of God. So just to put it this way, legalism, Again, the law is holy and good. Legalism dies in Christ's judgment. For Christ bore the law for us on the cross. But at the same time, my freedom... To not care how my freedom affects my brother... Dies in his resurrection. So those who lean to law... Die to the law because the law is fulfilled in Christ. But those who might lean toward freedom... They have to be about caring for and serving their brothers and sisters. I love that. Our freedom is not a freedom not to care how our freedom affects our brothers because that has died in the resurrection of Jesus where now we are free, married to the bridegroom Christ, to die to our own rights, to die to our own justifying things and instead serve those around us. In sacrificial love. So, John 15 says, There is no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So, let's go all the way back to that first question What's one thing you would change about the world? Jesus says, John, high priestly prayer, end of John's gospel, we are to be in the world and not of it. But how are we to be in the world? Are we to be in the world idle? Like I'm going to be in the world and not do anything about it. I'm just going to sit here and wait for the rapture. Jesus is probably not going to come back before you pass into the next life, okay? And even when you do, it's a new heavens and a new earth, not floating babies and harps. So we need to take Luther seriously and be about planting trees. We are not in the world and not of it idly, nor are we in the world and not of it fearfully. Oh, so many of us in the church were just afraid. Oh, the world is scary. The world is bad. Jesus conquered death. He rose from the grave. So we are neither idle nor fearful, but instead we are to be in the world and not of it, actively, creatively bringing in the nowness of the new creation. In the midst of the not yet, bringing in the nowness of a new world for the life of the world creatively building beauty, bearing the fruits in our lives of God's holy law. So what is the one thing that you want to change? A similar question would be, where does God want to use you in ordinary ways, joyful ways to bring life from death? Where does God want you to go build your seesaw? Where does God want you to go build your seesaw? And it's possible. And it will lead people to Jesus. Because truly in Christ, there is a new way to be human. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and even the complicated text of Romans 7. We thank you that, Paul, you make us aware, brothers and sisters, you're speaking to those who know the law, that that if we die, if we die to our sin, We die to the sinful nature in Adam. We can be raised up in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We can be brought into a new relationship. We can be held and loved by Jesus, our bridegroom. And Lord, you give us a new purpose. Help us to bear fruit, we pray. Help us to subvert the powers and principalities of the world and the nations that rage with a sacrificial love that they can't understand by crossing the aisle every time because we care about the issues of justice on both sides, to undermine religiosity and to be humble. Or do that, we ask. And pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.